welcome to the Forest Creek Podcast. Today we are very lucky, blessed if you will, to be joined by Father Anthony Paul, or as many in the Coptic Orthodox congregation know you, Abuna AP. This episode is quite anticipated, particularly by the community that knows you very well. Shout out to the Coptic Orthodox Church of St. George, still going strong after the arson. And uh, to all the sinners in YVR, you know who you are. Before we dive into things here, I do want to mention up front, I consider the Forest Creek to be a secular brand. This is a secular podcast. Spirituality and religion in general, though, they play a really big role in history and culture and philosophy and even politics, all that stuff. So we can't just ignore it, and naturally we're very curious about it here at the Forest Creek. So we don't hesitate to tackle or touch on or discuss any of these ideas, uh, especially when an opportunity like this arises. And it was very, very difficult to schedule you, uh, naturally. Uh, You're a very popular guy. I feel badly about that. (laughs) And of course, on our services end, we would love to get involved with creating content, audio, video, written for your ministry. So feel free to contact us if you are interested. We would be happy to take your inquiries at theforestcreek at gmail.com. Right. So, without further ado, our discussion today might have us dipping in and out of some more niche religious jargon. Obviously, there's a big intellectual part of religious philosophy that relies on specific terms, but we also have to keep things to layman's terms to reach a broader audience. Einstein once said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. But at the same time, things don't always make sense without the pathology or the logic that leads to them. So, with that being said, do you prefer to use the exact terms when discussing the bigger ideas, or do you like to keep things simple? Which do you think is more effective? I tend to use the more simple. So, actually, when you sent me that, I didn't realize that Einstein said that. Oh. Um, so, I was just like, oh, because that's like a philosophy I kind of semi live by of like, if you can't dumb it down, you don't get it. Um, yeah. Is how I'd say it. And, like, and sometimes. You're just dumb, um, <laughs> but I, I like. I definitely like the uh, the layman's terms because if like if the goal is to have a real discussion, then you want to make right. sure the person gets it. Yeah, including yeah. myself. <laughs> it's interesting because I always find that even the process of breaking something down into simpler terms actually makes it easier to understand for you too yeah it's almost like uh, when you're programming you have to break things down into like the simplest possible directions like you have to tell somebody if you were programming a robot to pick up a glass it's like telling every individual finger to close so many degrees around Mm. the glass right so and that's that's like teaching a really dumb student (laughs) or a layman (laughs) so we'll start at the beginning where were you born i was actually born in london ontario canada um but I usually bust up the British accent and pretend I was in London, England. But London, Canadian London. What was your childhood like? Um, it depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was a nerd, I think, um, like in the social sense. So I had a blast, actually. Really missed the 90s. Um, <laughs> thought they were a great time. It was a different world, I think, in my childhood. So I really liked it. It was like the time when people like talked to their neighbors and... You'd go to people on your streets to swim in their swimming pool. You walked with people on your street to the bus stop to go to school. Like, it was that kind of world. So, actually, I think it was, a, it was a blast, to be honest. Childhood. 
high school maybe not so much but, <laughs> but for, for a number of reasons yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting so wait what kind of nerdy stuff were you into then back then i was a big reader um i think because i sucked at sports so um i read everything so like in grade three or four i was reading like the lord of the rings on the one hand and the My Teacher is an Alien series on the other. That actually um, sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, the mix didn't bother me. So anything that I could swallow, whether it's mm-hmm. mythology or fiction or literature from really, really young, I was really into. Cool. Yeah. Did you listen to a lot of music back then? Because 90s was really big on the grunge and Coldplay and, I don't know, Radiohead. So I got into music late. Now I'm obsessed. For anybody who knows me, they know that. But... Um, I didn't listen to radio music that much until high school, um, like when I started working at my my dad's pharmacy, mm-hmm. um, and that's when I should. Before that, it'd be like I'd only listen to specific singers, like a cassette tape um, type thing. Whereas, like I think late nineties, I did. I do like Coldplay, but um, like the late nineties, early two thousands jam is, <laughs> is, is is my yeah. thing. Those were somehow like the perfect era for like tv and stuff everything was still like just figuring out how to stabilize in the commercial realm Mm -hmm. that was like the the pre-9-11 golden age yep all right um in my opinion though post 9-11 is the best era of spongebob i never watched spongebob oh my god i never saw (laughs) or i saw barney at people's houses but i was like right before all of that. I was right. like the Seinfeld era. Um, <laughs> well, I was loved it. The best one. That was the best show. Even today, people still. That's the water cooler show about nothing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I think it paved the way for like Parks and Rec in the Office, like of having that not normal humor. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of having that almost self-aware humor, the mm-hmm. non-scripted kind of, you know, because everything up till then was a sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. So, were you always religious? Um, actually, yes, I think. Because um, it's, it's always a more epic story to be like, oh, no. And like I yeah. said, but no, I was pretty religious. Um, I think it was, <laughs> I had a couple of years where I was internally pretty much atheist. Mm-hmm. But I still loved religion. Um, so, that actually made it more of a struggle because I always enjoyed the religious stuff, to be quite honest. Um, so... I would say, yeah, like even more than the average kid at church, I probably would have been considered more on the religious side. Hmm. Interesting. It's it's funny that you say that you were kind of like internally an atheist at one point, because even the most religious people I know, everybody's had the gap year from God in some way. Yeah, yeah, everybody's had like that little bit of a break Uh or something at some point, and then they rediscover it and it grows, Um, Mm -hmm. or they don't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so was it something that was like really strong with your family in particular or? I think so. And I think for a lot of the immigrant community, that's not like it was, I liked it cause there was that mix of both culture and religion, which I probably didn't know how to differentiate at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, where like a lot of the, cause I mean, Orthodox churches tend to be very ethnic, um, by nature because they're not the religion of the West. So almost everybody's an immigrant. Right. So it was like that, that bond between culture and religion was there. So it was like. It was as much about the God part to me, which I, I was really into the actual God part, but also like the meals, the hangouts, the Sunday school classes, the outings, the like summer camps, like all of those things together. Um, I just really, really liked. 
it definitely feels like a lot of those things are very wedded together. Every time I've heard someone speak Arabic, you know, it, to me it falls into that context mm -hmm. that all these things are kind of wedded together. And, you know, the Coptic part of Coptic Orthodoxy definitely insinuates that a yeah. lot. Yeah. Um, we'll get to that very soon, but I, I do want to keep, keep kind of going with your journey. Um, can you tell us about some of the ups and downs of like, you know, where did you find yourself getting that atheist gap year? <laughs> and what, what were the ups that lead out of it? I think the like atheistic tendency, like I said, I don't, I don't have a dramatic and then I like rejected and went out like leaving, even if maybe mentally I did. It actually was caused by church, not by society, I think, um, where... I remember having a Sunday school teacher giving a lesson and I had been learning about Pangea. It was grade seven, grade eight, I think mm -hmm. grade seven. And so I asked a question about where Pangea in the timeline fit into certain things because it just didn't drive for me. And so I asked the question in the Sunday school and I don't think this, I mean, we call them servants, but I think that sounds funny to your audience, like the, the teacher. Um, <laughs> yeah. Had no clue what I was talking about, but acted like the person did. And so their answer didn't make sense. And I gave them an exit that I knew didn't make sense. And they jumped on it. So mm. I internally, because I knew myself decently even at that age in the sense of I was very principled. So I was like, I don't, I don't know how to ignore when I know something's not true. Yeah. So that was the kind of the, the catalyst because I remember just sitting there being like, what else are you lying about? And at that age, you just assume everyone's malicious when in hindsight, it was probably really benign. The person didn't know if I was okay with an answer. They just jumped on it and kind of moved on. But it kind of um, fermented. So it was late high school when I got more, I, like I wasn't formally philosophical, but my way of thinking I right. think is. Um, where I started questioning everything. It's like, well, what else are they lying about? What else is not fake? What else is fake? Um, these are stories that I really like, but they're probably not true. I started going into that. Mm -hmm. um, Can I ask how old were you at the time? I want to say that started at 16, 17. Okay. Even though externally, I would have looked to all eyes totally hyperactive in church. Like I loved it. Right. Like and, and being into everything, I'd be there every week and I, there was no change. But I think that was the low point because... I think people don't realize that for a person who actually believes, right, not just like communally believes or for fun believes or advantageously believes, something about you becomes undone when you remove that. Um, mm -hmm. So it was actually extremely uncomfortable. It wasn't even like, oh, I'm doing this because I want to do something and religion is like controlling me. It wasn't even any of that. It was literally just a, hmm, I think this is fake. And that was more unsettling, I think, than right. almost anything in my life. That's always struck me to be kind of an interesting scenario in the first place, being in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. Because it kind of makes sense when you're a kid, and they're just telling you basically the equivalent of bedtime stories. Mm -hmm. And you're learning the idea, oh, the angel keeps you safe, just pray, everything's mm -hmm. fine. And then you start to question things when you turn into a teenager, and hang on a second. So this middle-aged volunteer soccer mom is telling me the secrets of the universe <laughs> and she can't fit in Pangea into the mix. It's like, mm -hmm. and when that one little gap in the authority that they have as your teacher is gone, it's like the rest are dominoes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of brought you back into it? Was it just the repetition you eventually kind of fell back in love or what, what's the, no, actually, um, 
I used to spend most most of my summer holidays in Egypt with family, and then I ended up getting really into the culture there, being friends with people at church there, and, and church there was an integral part of life. So socially, you'd be in the church. So I had fun, but that but then um, a friend of mine, who actually now does live in Canada, asked me if I wanted to go to a monastery retreat with him. And I don't know why I said yes, because I actually hated monasteries and thought they were the most boring place in the universe. They're a little bit um, boring. <laughs> ended up joining one. Almost um, on purpose. <laughs> and he ended up canceling and I went anyway and I didn't know why. And I, it was a complete change, 180 degrees. There's like the pre-monastery me and post-monastery me. Where it was this sense, it was not just a sense, it was the first time, I think, for me, seeing, um, I mean, judgmental hindsight, but authentic Christianity. Um, where I'm like, okay, wait, these people really mean it. Like, it's it's different. Because a lot of these monks are former professionals, pharmacists, doctors, engineers. Right. Like, and they gave they up everything. They know about Pangea. Yes. <laughs> um, and I'm like, why are they here? Um, like, with... Like, there's no sex, there's no money, there's literally a wall around them. Um, and yet they were stupidly happy, like, authentically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw virtue playing out. I saw the narrative. Like, they were different. They were clearly different people. So I was, I remember actually thinking, like, okay, if this is what it's supposed to look like. I'm down to put an effort just to see if that's a thing. Um, and then that opened... A bunch of other things. Then I was, I was like, let me give this a try, and then a bunch of things just one after another after another. Where it was just like, I was like, no, this is real. And then I started approaching faith from the context and lens of it being real, and I started. So it, basically, that caused the spiritual side to become very awake again, um, which provoked. Um, I don't want to use the word academic, but the knowledge side to also increase right. of like, where is this coming from? What's the actual claim? Even if they're nice, that's nice. You can be nice and be wrong. Um, so like, but it made the journey of truth to me more worth it. Of uh, being like, there's something real. I, I always use the analogy being like, it's like if a little kid sees Kobe, God opposed the soul, um, playing, <laughs> right? Is that it, it, it makes your, your drills and your dribbling and the tiny minute lessons serve a greater purpose because you saw what it can do. Because when you did it by itself, it's just like, why are we literally tapping a ball up and down in the air? Mm-hmm. What does it have to do with the game? Like, like just let us play, right? Where this, like, suddenly it means something because you saw it in action. That's always been very interesting when people talk about spiritual experiences. Because and the experience part of it is all subjective. But it be- often becomes the impetus of the objective side of people rationalizing and thinking it out. Mm-hmm. And then deciding to continue on with it. Right. If you try to do the whole thing objectively, that's when people kind of like scrunch their eyebrows and put on fedoras and go on Reddit. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the point being is like you have to have both sides of the coin. Otherwise, it, you'll if you are lacking in one area, that's where everything else is going to fall out. In sure. some way. I might even say that I don't think all the subjective is purely subjective. Um, like I think it might get minimized to that. But it's like certain things on a quote-unquote subjective level, either happened or didn't, right? Because I think some people, when they mean spiritual experience, they mean feelings. So on that level, I'd be like, yeah, that like the feeling side, sure. But it's like, and I think you 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 had something um, to discuss at some point of 
like miraculous or visions or etc. Yes. Right. Where it's like some of those are either happened or it didn't. Um, so it's like those are things where it's just like, OK, that was a subjective experience in the sense that I'm the subject who had this experience, but something real happened that wasn't a feeling. Um, so there's that aspect, too. Right. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. So let's, uh, so what came first for you? Was it monasticism or priesthood? Um, it was, uh, it was priesthood, okay. um, which is technically backwards in, in the Orthodox tradition. Um, usually a monk could become a priest, but a priest doesn't become a monk. That's interesting because it sounded backwards based on your journey that you were interested in the monasticism before mm-hmm. the priesthood. So what <laughs> happened? I actually went to join a monastery, but I went to California. Um, whereas the monastery that I was most and still I'm probably most attached to is St. Anthony's in Egypt. Um, the original one, the best one. Um, but um, at the time in Egypt, they were not they were not welcoming of non like ethnically living in Egypt characters, but I think there was a negativity towards it, which I understand of like, you're not necessarily going to culturally be able to stand this. Um, like a Westerner likes things like personal space. They don't like that over there. Yeah. Um, like those things. So I went to California. I wasn't initially very content at the specific monastery that I was at. So the abbot of the monastery happened to also be the diocesan bishop. So when I was looking at potentially leaving to be like, well, I'm going to do Egypt anyway. He encouraged me to try out the, it was a monastic adjective community um, where he was like, you would still be a monk in the sense of you take the same vows and you get to live the same kind of spiritual life. But the difference is that instead of your work being communally in the monastery, like cooking, cleaning, Hmm. um, like gardening or, or whatever it is, is that now you're doing a ministry for the diocese. And, and it can be public and it can be private, just but that you're serving. Um, so it could be writing, it could be reading, it could be being with youth, it could be educating, like there's like a billion things. So he told me I could try and that if I didn't like it, he wouldn't prevent me from going to a traditional monastery. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was why that happened. Um, and then that monastic community went from adjective to noun because they turned it into a monastery. So that's why the tonsuring happened after. Interesting. So when you take the vows, like, I, I'm sure people are familiar to some extent with the rules, but they always picture like the friar tuck looking guys <laughs> with, the, with the shaved head on the top yep. or something. So what is like, what are the vows, you know, do they differ from the type that people imagine? I, cause I've heard that, you know, you're not allowed to drink liquor, but then some other types of monks drink half a bottle of wine a day or something. Right. No, you don't vow about any of those. You vow, um, like the three traditional monastic vows are chastity, poverty, and obedience. And so, like, the chastity is, like, a monastic doesn't get married, hence the monk part. And then the uh, poverty is to not accumulate wealth. So that vow, for example, when we were still called the St. Paul Brotherhood before it became the Abbey, had a different meaning than a monk because you needed to drive a car. You needed to have a phone. You needed to have a computer. So, like, it was not like a... You are not allowed to possess. It was, are you accumulating wealth? So there's a room with, uh, within your discipleship relationship as to what that looks like, right? But it'd be like, if you're saving up money to just have cash, there's something not going right. Yeah. Um, and obedience is meant to be a spiritual one. Um, in the, It's like in the sense of submitting yourself to a trainer. I saying if I hire a personal trainer, 
of saying I've made an active decision that I'm going to sit my submit myself to the regimen because I think the obedience one is probably the most offensive to the ear of most Westerners of like autonomy. I'm in charge of my own self. Like it's this instantaneous cringe mm-hmm. um, at the word. So that w- that's the the third one. And in in a monastic case, it's also obedience to the church in the sense of unlike a married priest, for example, who didn't take a vow of obedience. If the church says move here, I move. Right. If the church says, like, you're going to serve at this parish, I move. Having said that, they're usually receptive to hearing your thoughts and opinions and feelings, et cetera. But at the end of the day, when the order is given, the order is given. Um, yeah. And that's different than the rest of all the Christians <laughs> that are not in that battle. So you have to obey the hierarchy, not just the religion. Yeah. In some sense. Interesting. Okay. Um, what about priesthood? So getting into serving a congregation what does that entail i mean obviously there's a uniform that's yeah. <laughs> part of it which is one thing i'm actually kind of curious about <laughs> but you know like so when you started doing that what was kind of the impetus to stay was it just an interest from the beginning or so in the in the, in what was called the saint paul brotherhood it's not called saint paul abbey the bishop's rule was that nobody was allowed if you're in the brotherhood to be a parish priest um he's like in in the orthodox tradition priests are married so he was like, so we're breaking a little bit from the norm. It's not wrong, but it's not the norm for us to not be married. So he preferred that we serve generally. I had no idea what I was doing because I never in my life thought I'd ever be a priest. So it was like I got invited to give talks um, at churches. So then I just go. I just basically being myself. So after the talk, people would want to hang out, chat, go out to eat. So relationships, I think, just naturally got built. And then people would be like, Yo, come through, do you want to chill, do you want to hang out, do you want to play board games, that kind of thing. So I think it just kind of organically happened that I got into what is now called youth services, because I don't think I would have even named it that. I don't think I'd have named it just youth, and I wouldn't have named it service, to be honest. People um, say youth, and they think like teenagers and kids. Yeah. They don't think like 18-year-olds and university students and grads and whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's a big age range. <laughs> um, that's why I'm just like, I don't even know what it's called, but... And I don't even, I don't always like the word service because it almost sounds like a condescension, even though like that's not what it means, but it sounds yeah. like, oh, I am here to be at your feet, like you people in need of Jesus. Like, like I worry that the word sounds like that, whereas like it isn't that, it's literally just being it on the street. I find people. it interesting about religious verbiage in general. Like mm-hmm. we don't use the word worship in any other context. Yeah. And even saying worship is strange. Mm-hmm. It's, you only know it in the one way. And even so, it's when I go to church, I don't even consider myself worshiping mm-hmm. to some degree. I'm there, I'm thinking, I'm praying, I'm doing all the things that would be in worship. Yeah. But I don't think of myself as worshiping anything. You, you almost want to imagine these primitive people bowing in front of a giant statue or something. Yes. As worship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Coptic Orthodox Christianity. These three words need some definitions. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? I'll go in the inverse of what you said, because okay. I think that's where I think it should be on some level said the opposite way, even though the norm is, is what you just said. Right. Right. Like Christians starting with the premise, and I think this is what people forget, like that there is a historical person named Jesus. Um, Christ. Who made <laughs> yeah. a God claim mm-hmm. um, that we believe. Right. So that's the starting point. So the commonality of all people who are formally called Christians um, is the acceptance that there is this person who claimed he is God and we believe his claim. Um, 
So, like, that's the basic point. That's why Christians of all denominations, whether Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, basically all accept what's now called the Nicene Creed um, on some level. It's just saying we have these basic things in common about what we believe. The where we differ is where the Orthodox part comes in, um, where the early church called herself the one holy Catholic, and Catholic meant, not meant, it still means, universal um, church. And so we started adapting different labels when we started to disagree on certain points. So the Orthodox, which like the word Orthodox means right praise or correct, like like linear, um, like like it also means ortho, like an orthogonal, like that kind of, of, of understanding. So is there's a claim that basically we think right, um, mm-hmm. which is basically everybody's claim. Um, That's interesting because I know Catholic kind of means that it's the explanation of everything. Mm-hmm. And then I always thought that Orthodox, because of the way that it tends to be implied, is traditional. That's what socially it's become, but the actual claim is not that at all. Interesting. Um, which is why you can be Orthodox and be very progressive too. Um, because the Orthodox mindset would be like, is my thinking sound? Is my faith sound? Right. Um, and the application could change. And so like the the... It's funny because the Catholics and the Orthodox technically name their church the same thing. <laughs> so like the Orthodox are technically the Orthodox Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholics are also the Catholic Orthodox Church. We're all claiming universality and we're all claiming rightness um, for those. And then the Coptic part, I think, is an interesting one because I think it's a challenge even within within our own communities today. Because I think in the West, when we say Coptic, we mean specifically the Church of Alexandria, like that tradition. Whereas some people will take it as meaning purely just Egyptian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that distinction of whether we mean the Church of Alexandria versus um, specifically being Egyptian um, yeah. is symbolic of many struggles most we have. Egyptians are Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> a, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, on, that, on that topic, I always thought it was kind of funny because the way I've heard it is that the Coptic Church descends from the teachings of St. Mark, whereas the Catholic Church descends from the teachings of St. Peter. Because you have that part where Jesus tells him, you're going to be the shepherd of the flock, and then he becomes the first pope, and the line of popes comes thereafter. Right. But then you have St. Mark on his little adventure going into Egypt, and then some guy hitting his, like a nail into his hand or something, trying to fix a shoe. Yeah. And then that kind of sparked the whole... The whole ministry there. Yeah. Yeah, and actually it's... So it's not necessarily the... It is the teaching, but it's not really what we're referring to. All the apostolic churches are saying we descend from directly from at least one apostle, mm-hmm. right? So it'll be like, who founded your church, right? So for us, that was that was Mark. Actually, the, the title Pope started in Egypt first um, before it got to Rome. That's why the only two churches that use the, the title are us and the Catholics. But the... Um, the apostolic claim is that lineage, like what you just said, of like who started it and then who was after and after and after and after, right? right? So like we trace our our popes, um, like we're on number 118 right now. Um, so like you have this this line chain of saying the one before him was, was, was until you get back to, to Mark. And Rome's claim is that Peter and Paul did, um, but that's also Antioch's claim as well. So it's like, I mean, that's all the historical stuff. Like that's where... History gets fun. 
um, about all the claims, the arguments, and the the historical issues that were not always very religious. <laughs> it's, it's always funny having a conversation about this with friends from other denominations because mm-hmm. the Catholic friend will be like, "I have the real Pope," and I'll be like, "You don't even have the real Vatican. It's Vatican II with you guys." <laughs> like, mm. And then, meanwhile, the Protestant friend is like, "What do you got, Joel Steen?" <laughs> And then it gets contentious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, in, all in good f- fun yeah. and faith. Catholic friend of mine at one point remarked that Catholic priests take on the demeanor of a doctor or a dentist. Protestant priests or pastors, sorry, almost seem like camp counselors or mm. even like country rock stars. <laughs> but then Orthodox priests, and this is where we'll get to the outfit, you maintain the look of wizards. Yeah. Um, does this stem <laughs> from the idea of adhering to tradition or adhering to orthodoxy? And what are some of the pros and cons of the orthodox priest uniform? Yeah, I have a hate-love relationship with it myself, to be honest. I think that the, the, West, the Western churches, Catholicism and Protestantism, they developed and evolved naturally in a Western culture, right? So there was a time where they dressed like us too. And there was a time where they did beards. Um and they evolved with their culture in uniform, in thought, in look, like in everything. The East did too, but within the context of its own culture. So that's why I'm like the the growing of the beard and the cassock, um, or getabeya as we call it in Arabic. It's like a long black uh, ga- tunic gown? What's gown. the well, cassock's the, the former English word, right. but no one no one knows that word that much anymore it's either. It's practically medieval. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think even the word dates it. Um, but that was still normal in the Middle East, right? That was mm-hmm. still normal in the East in general, not just the Middle East. Well, it's so very that's hot why... there. I'm not going to wear pants. And and actually, in certain traditions, they didn't even wear black for their cassock. For example, oh, the Ethiopian monks wear white. Um, and same tradition, sister church. So we have been having those conversations in the West about whether this uniform needs to look this way or not. So some of the other Orthodox churches, their priests will wear the cassock liturgically, mm-hmm. um, like in, in mass, if you will, but not in the community. So I'll run into Eastern Orthodox priests at grocery stores sometimes that are wearing the collar or they're wearing like normal clothes with like something slightly identifying them, maybe a crucifix or something. Um, so I know that in my own diocese, our own bishop at one point, um, before I got ordained, opened up to the clergy asking them how they felt about the uniform. So there's a room for that discussion. Um, I think the resistance comes from within about what you're what you're asking. Whereas like this not knowing how to always just distinguish between culture and religion affects even clergy of being like, are we breaking from tradition? Right. If we switch the uniform, um, will that scandalize people? People view us in a particular way, including uniform. Will that be weird and in some sense it's a question of like british judges wearing the wig right right where it's just like so why are you still wearing that um and (laughs) and there are probably arguments for both sides um so we're still i think in that phase um i think many would like to change it up a bit Mm -hmm. yeah i don't mind it because like the standing out has done a lot of good like even here in, in 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 British Columbia, I remember being downtown Vancouver and a random woman in the street running up saying, "Are you a priest? Can I talk to you?" Um, and that's happened a lot of times. Or? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I was so surprised, and like 
she was excited, had her conversation, was going through a rough time and walked away. And I'm like, if I didn't look so like weird, this, yeah. <laughs> um, like she wouldn't have. So I'm like, there's days where I'm like, okay, I think standing out is not a bad thing. Or at least not the word standing out is probably not the right word of having a, a distinctive uniform is is helpful. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it needs to look like this. <laughs> I don't know. I find that it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that the wise man in the crowd still has this long beard because <laughs> it's almost like a hermetic tradition right. of like the person who looks the oldest is therefore the wisest. Or whatever. Playing with your beard definitely makes you look sophisticated. And I then, feel Gandalfish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get you like a long pipe. Yeah. <laughs> um, w- during liturgy though, the mm-hmm. mass, it flips from black to white. Yeah. The, the hat gets taller and pointier. Mm-hmm. What is the, what, what is the deal behind the hat? So the hat, which is called the the mitre, was a symbol. So they it, it's borrowed from the Old Testament traditions of the priesthood. Okay. Um, so Aaron had, um, I, I'm it's, it shows you the tension in secular communities of why I'm nervous to say certain words um, because I'm <laughs> anticipating reactions to them. I'm like the priest wore a crown. People um, hardly listen to this. So. So. <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> Where like there was a priestly crown, which is just like a, a sign of a particular kind of authority um so we were borrowing from that like in terms of the hat part the white i mean depending on you ask is a symbol of like approaching the community purified in christ right the external being supposed to match the internal or at least being a goal um of the internal and simplicity and in some in some orthodox communities i'm thinking specifically right now the ethiopian and eritrean they all whether they're clergy or not wear white and so, which I think is very cool, just everyone having the same uniform is is kind of neat. I also like that despite having a uniform, there's like variations. Mm-hmm. You guys carry different crosses, different chains, a hood, a hat, something. Yeah. It all switches up. <laughs> I noticed like some priests trim their beards, other ones let it go. Um, yeah. I remember I ran into a British Orthodox priest one time and he was rocking a ponytail. I was like, okay, I like <laughs> He got different takes. <laughs> A question from uh, one of the Protestant friends. Mm -hmm. Why should anyone pray to the saints or to Mary, uh, the mother of Christ, rather than to God or Jesus? He had also added on something about, you know, you can pray to God anytime because he's omnipresent and omniscient and can therefore hear you at any time. The saints, do they also have the same omniscience and omnipresence? And why take the indirect detour of prayer rather than straight to? This is just something that I've noticed Mm -hmm. comes up quite often. Uh, especially in where the Protestant community might meet the Orthodox or Catholic community. Because the Catholics also have this uh, deep love of Lady Fatima or Mary, and you know it, it, they intersect in that sense. And on the other hand, I can see where it also gets out of hand as well, because, I don't know, some people, when you talk to them, they treat the saints like they're the Avengers mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the other side, disregarding them feels like to lose a part of your history. So... On that kind of scale, where is the healthy place to lie? What is the point to praying to the saints? Do they have the same omni adjectives? Right. And like that was a big part of the Protestant Reformation. Like, I don't use the word rebellion, but it, it was on some level of, of what had become tradition. Well, there was um, some fighting. There was yeah, quite a bit of there fighting. There was definitely some yeah. unhappiness. That's when like it always comes back to me of like, what is the claim? As opposed to what's preferred or what does one like? Right. So if what we're doing is we're saying we're talking to somebody, 
then the question almost presupposes like I'm only allowed to talk to God. Where I'm like, why does it presume that if I talk to a saint or converse with a saint that I'm somehow not talking to God? Right? Like, for example, it's not weird in the Protestant tradition to ask somebody to pray for you. Right? So I could respond the same thing and be like, why go just to go talk to God? Um, but there is a sense of community, like there's conversation and that I can benefit from others and that we all have these different relationships. So to us, it's this big context of family that the people who are in Christ are all family. So I definitely can, should, and do talk to dad, right? All, all, yeah. all those prayers are, um, but we're saying, why, why is it wrong to talk to uncle as well? Right. And if you look at the, the, the context of, of grace as like this, quote unquote, free gift from God. Right. Just for the sake of an analogy, let's call it money. Is that if I talk to my uncle and my uncle does something for me, we're also making the claim that all the money came from dad. Right. Like it's all from God. So whether it's through just like on earth of saying we wouldn't have a problem saying if somebody came and, and fixed my spare tire, I'm saying thank you, God even though God did not incarnate and come down and fix my car. Yeah. Right. Whereas like I, there's an understanding of where everything originates from. Um, so I'm like, we don't really have that confusion. Like we're not, we're not putting it as a substitute. So an Orthodox person doesn't have to use intercession. Uh, an Orthodox person would not be able to say that it's wrong to. So like a person, even within the Orthodox community, who's not constantly saying through the intercessions of or cultivating a personal relationship with a saint, we wouldn't view them as necessarily being an error. If they said it's wrong and illegal, we'd be like, okay, well, then you doct doctrinally don't agree with us, which you're allowed to have your opinion, but it wouldn't be Orthodox. And so we look back to those traditions. So it'd be like, okay, where is there a biblical sense of intercession? Um, just so that I don't turn this into a religious episode of like the, the nitty gritty, but mm -hmm. there are many biblical examples of it, including God saying yes to something through the prayers of people who were dead. Um, hmm. And so that's why it's like to us, it's like, we don't really believe that they're just dead. We believe that they are alive in Christ and that they are alive because of Christ, because of the resurrection. Right. Um, so our belief in, in their role is based on the resurrection. I've always liked that idea that it's like, you don't have to, you get to, yeah. if you want to. Well you know, said. So yeah. In that yeah. kind of way. Your dead relatives, your dead human relatives, family, like we don't pray to them. We don't do ancestor prayer in any sense. I mean, because, you could. Um, could you? Yeah. Because the way that like I've always kind of thought about it is the thing that separates grandpa who's not with us and the saint is that we just have this declaration that the saint, we know he's in heaven. We don't 100% know where grandpa is. Yes and no. So you're you're on to something, but I think what we're saying when we declare someone a saint um, is just for like lack of a, to use the whole dumb it down thing, it's saying we're, we're approving somebody to be a poster boy or a poster girl. Oh, okay. Right? Like I was just saying, we're not, we, we've, we've waited around to find out, is there scandal around this person? Is there something going on where the stories fit? Like, what can we know about them before saying, yeah, go ahead, put a picture up on the wall. Right? So if you, it's like, just like before someone runs for president, they're going to do their deep dive research. Is there any scandal out there? Is there anything on the internet? What can we find out about this person so that they don't become scandalous, right? Or it's like when the chess master is accused of cheating, 
Um, what does that mean mm-hmm. about their awards, right? Right. So it's not us saying um, that they did no wrong. And it's not us placing them in a special category as though they made the cut. As much as just saying every living baptized person is an icon of Christ. But if we're going to hold somebody up for conversation, for biographical, for lessons, right? To be like, hey, learn from this person who did the Christian thing well. Like, that's the goal of it. It's not just about their person. Um, then the ones that we make official are just ones that we feel like, okay, we can vouch for them. We feel pretty confident that they're in the right place um, and that they did it well. That's what I'm saying. So a person whose relative died, just because they weren't declared a saint doesn't mean anything. Because the saint just meant that whole thing. Right. Right. So they could even theoretically be up there at the same level as the saints in terms of just being having been just as good as some of the saints, but not getting the public um, recognition, recognition of yeah, it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. Because uh, this is another thing. Do the denominations share a record of sainthood, or is it just like for each church? Because I remember reading like old books and coming across uh, Robin Hood t- talking about Saint Dunstan. I'd be like, who's mm-hmm. that? In some way, but then yeah. you know, like other names that come up, do we recognize them at the same time? When the Catholic Church changes something about a saint, do we have to change it as well? What's the procedure? So mostly, our dividing lines are historical of when we div- when we divided. So anybody pre schism of whatever schism happened, because there's the two, there's the three major schisms. There's the first one that we broke off in the fifth century. Um, First major one, there's other schisms, but then the second one between the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics, and then the Protestants from the Catholic. So it's almost like the early Protestants, who many of them believed in saints, would have been okay with all the Catholic saints and back, right? The Eastern Orthodox would be fine with all of, like, the the Catholic saints. Like, there'd be a commonality of saints up to that schism, um, and whoever's forward kind of misses it. Same thing with us. So anybody pre-certain councils or, or, or historical events, we hold in common, um, and we wouldn't formally call somebody after it from other traditions. We wouldn't formally call them a saint, even though we might acknowledge their sanctity and greatness, right? Like if, to me, for example, I have no doubt about Mother Teresa's right. um, sanctity, right? So our church wouldn't call her a saint because it, it it's to use the titles to say we're doctrinally in full agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just saying like we vouch for their doctrine and their practice, Right. When we're yeah. when we're making it official. Um, and so that's like officially we don't have a sharing from wherever we split from. Practically speaking, we do in the sense that even Pope Francis, when the 21 martyrs of Libya, who are Coptic Orthodox Egyptians, got killed, he immediately was calling them saints, um, even though they might not formally in the church. Right. Put them in the record. So that actually kind of bends over to my next question. There's a pretty heavy focus in the Coptic Orthodox education on martyrdom Mm -hmm. and dying for Christianity. Uh, Growing up in the education of the church, it almost seemed like we were being prepared to die and that death for believing in in Christ is like right around the corner. Mm -hmm. It's always looming. Um, And there's, yeah, there's a lot of persecution in our history to kind of like back that up. But in the modern world, Mm -hmm. is this a very useful thing to be mentioning all the time? I think so. I maybe, maybe not in the exact way that it has been, but as a concept, I think so. I think, especially as somebody who struggled with doubt, like of being like, do I really believe this? 
right? Because to be to be willing to die for something, like you want to be pretty confident. Like I mean, a lot of people die for things, but based on this confidence in its reality. But I think the Egyptian context is very particular because we've historically always just been being killed. Um, like the non-killing periods mm-hmm. were nice breaks from the normal of killing periods. Um, so like it's even in our hymnology where you'll see prayers like, Lord, keep the doors of the church open. And the reason for the prayer was because they were closed. Um, like So there's that context. So this peace that we're in right now, which I, I would call peace, isn't the norm and it's relatively new and it's always apprehensive. I think it's a different context in the West where we're not being physically murdered. Um, but I think, like, that's what I mean, like, when I mentioned the 21 Martyrs of Libya, it was like, okay, cool. There's a modern living example of it where they're not theologians, but they were like, we, you can threaten us with whatever you want, including death, but we're not leaving this um, kind of thing. Whereas in the West, I think there is a social killing of religious people, in my personal view. Um, there's a cancellation of religious oh, people. We'll get there. Um, so I'm like, <laughs> so I think that's something. I think it could be a benefit of being like, are you ready to die? In yeah. that sense, um, where your view on something that you believe to be true isn't socially acceptable, can you withstand that, um, or will you flee? Can you be a samurai for Jesus? Yep. In some sense, mm-hmm. <laughs> I always love telling kids that in Sunday schools, people die for this. Stop. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> There's always been a clash of attitudes when it comes to the story of Coptic Orthodoxy immigrating to North America, a spiritual culture in an increasingly secular place. Mm-hmm. There's the feeling, especially for people born here, that the adaptation and the adoption of the Western attitudes is the only way to survive, whereas you get the opposite from other people who will say that, no, 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 we have to stick to the tradition the way we always have through everything, all the persecution, mm-hmm. and that's the only way we will survive, the only way we keep things going. So we're caught in the middle of this idea between persevering and changing mm-hmm. in order to keep things going. Yeah. And what? how do we strike this balance in your view? I think that's the problem of orthodoxy in the West in general, to be honest, because every orthodox church, again, the, the church of the East was orthodox, the church of the West was Protestant Catholic, so they didn't really have to struggle it in, a, in such an obvious way as I think we are today. I think they actually struggled with it. Um, for example, not to go off tangent, if you want to see like the strongest literature condemning the use of music in church, it's Protestant, because they were struggling with, wait, what are you doing? Good old-fashioned Oliver Cromwell. Indeed. Um, So I think that for us, it's like that sense of always dying to your previous question, that sense of like, it made you just kind of being like, just like we're hanging on for life. Just keep doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. That context created something. Right. Whereas those like there's Orthodox countries that did not go through that almost at all. Like Greece barely had that as an issue. Right. So they for them church and country and nation were all, all one, one yeah. right? Um, whereas, so I think that's what we're struggling with here is that I don't think it's a, a balance issue. I think it's actually a discernment issue of what is an actual religious belief but and what is, what is a cultural tradition? Um, because I'm not as concerned about the cultural tradition because the duty of the church is not to hand down the culture. The duty of the church is to hand down the faith. Um, right. And so finding out how to do that in a contemporary Western culture, I think, is the the homework of our generation. 
We're still um, figuring it out. That are figuring it out, yeah. trying to discern that. And I think that there's an expensive period in our history where the complete non-differentiation costs a lot of souls. Mm-hmm. Um, I was saying, if you're selling this as one package, like, peace out to the whole thing. Um, but the differentiation, I think, is is what we're struggling with today. It's particularly interesting considering that, you know, one of the things we didn't necessarily touch on earlier is Coptic itself, the yeah. language yeah. that is at the core of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I guess, like, in the same way that the Catholics use Latin, we use Coptic, yeah. uh, which is a mix of, as I'm told, ancient Egyptian and Greek. Yeah, uh, it's ancient Egyptian Greek and Greek letters. Yeah, in that sense. Probably arising from, like, the Alexandria days... Or so. so if there's no one to preserve this language, then the essence of what the whole ordeal has been is more or less lost. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's not necessarily the most useful thing. Indeed. And I think, I mean, I come from a diocese where we had churches that use almost none of it. Where I'm like, I think if I was an, e- an a Coptic Orthodox Christian living in Egypt, I probably would defend the language. I don't see that a Canadian for example, or an American whose second or third or later generation has any actual real duty to it. Um, I'm not saying there's nothing nice about preserving it, but I, I mean the word duty, right? Because it's just like part of that history was that we had our tongues cut out for using our own language, right? In the Arabization of the country. So that's why like, if I was an ethnically living in Egypt, Egyptian, I would. Right, where I'd feel this part of that whole root history, not just as a Christian, but as like as a, as an identity, as a person in this country. It's almost like an indigenous person today in Canada um, might care more about preserving the language. Whereas, let's say they took off to Europe, where there's, I mean, there is an ancestry there, but let's pretend there wasn't an ancestry there. It, it, there's not much of a link. Um, so, like that language issue has been extremely contentious. Um, and I think as a symbol of the whole culture versus religious thing, where it's like, how useful is your religion to me when I have no clue what you're saying? Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> it's, it kind of raises the barrier to entry a yeah. little bit. Yeah. yeah. I, I heard at one point, I think it was from the Da Vinci Code movie or something, where Tom Hanks is explaining it. He's saying, like, it, for the Catholics, mm-hmm. the la- Latin had to be used because it was the most precise. Things like mm-hmm. English were too chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I think back to, I don't necessarily know much about the Egyptian side. I imagine it's similar to the Greek side of Coptic that I, I've been reading a lot about like ancient Greeks and all that and an ancient Greek myth and the words are built into the myth, mm-hmm. uh, rather than the other way around. So like we get, uh, the name of the Titan Prometheus, Prometheus, pro as in before and then Ethio kind of like the thinking part because mm-hmm. his name means forethinker yeah. in that sense. So like just having the same way and then you see the same prefix the I'm like, oh, okay. So when I'm saying the table, I'm thinking the think of the table. You are thinking of a specific table. Yeah. Yeah. So it, the languages have different advantages in that sense. But being in Western culture, like Tom Hanks said in the movie, it English is chaos. Mm-hmm. We use it to mean everything. Yeah. And it is a problem. Like, that's why I'm like, I'm not anti-Coptic. Um, I think I'm anti-compulsory Coptic um, and anti-non-understanding. I think if built in the right way with the right culture, everybody's fine. But when there's a sense of if you don't speak or pray in Coptic, that you're somehow less orthodox, right? Or less Christian, like for those like three words, 
that's when the trouble arises. And I think some people are putting forth that argument that to not use Coptic somehow means you're not either Orthodox or Christian. I kind of want to throw one of uh, the latter questions up here because it, it's something that does kind of stick out. Is like, mm-hmm. if you're not Coptic Orthodox Christian, are you going to hell? I want to like laugh and be like, yeah, I'm about worried that somebody's going to be like, CC, they said it. Um, no, definitely. Too late. We will not be the in. only ones in the room. Um, that would not be a, a thing. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a major problem like a, a, of a claim, even among the Orthodox of being like specifically Coptic. It's like, so even the churches we're in communion with, we're saying that they can't make it because they, they weren't Egyptian. Um, like the passport to heaven kind of thing. Yeah, no, there, there will be non-Egyptians in heaven. I sure, I sure hope. <laughs> <laughs> Jokingly, I think I told my mom one time, if Jimi Hendrix isn't in heaven, I don't want to go. <laughs> um, who is probably none of the three things, at least to my knowledge. A few colleagues that I had before, and this is where we'll start to get to the meat of what I wanted to talk about today is the secular meeting the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few colleagues I had one time in a religious philosophy course, they were talking and uh, one girl was explaining that she'd kind of taken a spiritual journey, that she used to be an atheist and was slowly becoming agnostic and learning more about spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I had a Muslim colleague who was also talking to us and he kind of just laughed and he said, there's no such thing as atheists or agnostics. There's just people who think they can replace Allah, mm-hmm. uh, God in that sense. So I'm curious what your take on it would be. Does atheism and agnosticism exist? Because I think we've talked about it before that if you don't have objective truth, God, or however we want to classify it, you start to find, try to seek meaning in other places. And we get people in some essence making their own gods mm-hmm. in some sense. So is it true that you can not be an atheist or agnostic? Is it like these things exist? I think they exist, but I think they're their own form of religion. Like, in the sense of they've got doctrines, they've got creeds. They might not be using that terminology, but they do, right? Like, they've got their tenets of these are, like, in. it was part of what actually, like, kind of got me back into Christianity, actually, was, was the logic, right? Where I'm just, like everyone's operating under the assumption of some level of objective truth while claiming that there isn't. So to me, like an agnostic and even I would say the majority of atheists that I've met, I think are on some spectrum of religion because I haven't met many atheists. I, I, I want to say I don't ha- I haven't met any. I might have met one at one point who's not even an atheist anymore, but who would say there's no such thing at all as real truth. Like, many might disagree on whether we could find it, what it is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is why I'm like, I wonder if, like, the true atheist is the one who says there's no such thing as truth, is how I personally would probably right. venture to say it. Whereas everyone else is on some spectrum of agnosticism. Um, like, for those who are formally not affiliated with the religion, of being like, I don't know, I'm not sure, maybe, I don't care. Like well, at least all that's of those what things. we use the word for. Because yeah. I've always like it's easy to say atheist because atheo without God. Yeah. But then agnostic, gnostic meaning knowledge. Knowledge meaning is like you're without meaning, without knowledge. Without knowledge. Yeah. Or oh, that knowledge is saying I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um and that's why, like even atheist originally meant people who didn't believe in the Roman gods. 
from what I yeah, what I read. Right? It's just term. like just not these gods, right? It, it didn't originally necessarily refer to what's now referred to as atheism. But I just don't the way that people are so vehement about their atheism. I'm like you're you're because I can give a couple good examples yeah. here. One is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who says, I resent being called an atheist because I don't play golf, and there's not a word for that mm-hmm. in that sense. But then you get the other side of the spectrum. I think there for a short while there was this thing called Atheism Plus, where they attended yeah. a pseudo-church and then started espousing progressive values in place of, like, commandments, for yeah. instance. And then you get the almost uh, the popularized worship of Richard Dawkins and evolution yeah, and, like, science in some way. And like I said earlier, the neckbeards on Reddit, you mm-hmm. know, that is that not their own monasticism that's <laughs> kind of self-imposed in yeah. some way? Yeah. That's what I mean. Is like you're rallying around some concept, you're teaching specific premises, right? Like of, of the examples you just gave, and like I think I like Neil deGrasse Tyson the most. Like I think that's the most on point if you want to do it right, in my, in my opinion, yeah. right? Like of being like, okay, yeah, at least acknowledge that, right? Of being like, this is a non-issue because. It's just not real. Like I'm like that's the most honest. Like yeah. that one is the. It's like you the, have your get out of jail free card. Go play Call of Duty. What exactly. Are you doing here? <laughs> right. You don't need a name about what you're not. Yeah. Right. And I was like, because that to me is the symbol of why I'm saying, but they're all religious because for this thing that you don't think is real, you're spending a lot of time and energy and thought about it, putting together a system about it, um, right? Of like, oh, we don't need that. We have this, right? Or even it's like you still have to deal with answers to things like ethics. So it becomes, what is your governance of ethics? Even to say, no, there's no such thing as ethics is still creedal. Like you're still putting out a a, a statement, right? So yeah. it's like, it's a, it's a fatwa, right? <laughs> like just, just a, a white one. Like in the sense of it's not a, a guy in a dress from the Middle East with a brown beard, right? Or, or white beard. Um, so that's what I'm just saying is that it's very interesting to me to see that everyone throws around certain words that I'm not sure that they're using properly. Um, or identifying properly. It's part of my thing that I just think that the West, we've canceled nouns and we live in adjectives <laughs> and ignore the fact that n- adjectives yeah. point at nouns and we're claiming to not believe in nouns. So I'm just like, if you don't believe in a noun, then you can't use an adjective. Because you have nothing to attach it to. Exactly. Yeah, you're just making subjective claims about reality without having any kind of objective flagpole. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I've always loved the people who say I'm spiritual but not religious. Because I'm like, oh, so you have all the, the right, you know, energy for it. <laughs> you just are afraid of the institution, which I, I can really sympathize with. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of, like, do's and don'ts, especially when you talk about getting into uh, the Coptic Orthodox Church, something that's, like, very ethnically centered mm-hmm. um, and culturally, you know, very intertwined. So it's not like any person, any Westerner with no affiliation, could just walk in and mm. get it right away, right? Whereas I hate that expression. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an oxymoron. Um, and that's why I'm just like, it, it, it depends so much on your use of nouns. So I get what a person might mean when they say that, but if we're going to use nouns as proper nouns and not I can make a noun mean what it means, whatever I want... Um, then it's a completely nonsensical thing to say, right? Yeah. It's it's like it's saying I'm I'm bodily but not physical, <laughs> right? Where it's like I I don't know how you do that, 
Um, like, where it's just like, how, what do you mean? I mean, in Greek, you could differentiate a sarx from a soma, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. Like, flesh from body. Yeah. But you definitely have both. So I don't know how you do it. Right? Whereas I'm like, I, if you redefine it of being like, by that, what I mean, I don't live according to the flesh. Right? Then it's just like, okay, but that's probably a wrong terminology um, because you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Whereas I'm like, the minute that you're saying spiritual, spiritual as an adjective, you're appealing to a noun called spirit. And that's in the realm of religion. Because you're talking about this non-material thing that you're claiming has an existence and that has properties and needs food and nourishment. And that can be healthy or not healthy and that can progress and grow. Those are all relative terms towards something objective, which is the realm of religion. That's what talks, that's the study of those very things, right? So that's why I'm just like, you can't divorce the two. You can make up your own religion, Right, so you can be like I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual, but not that religion about my spirit. Cool, um, like you could be consistent and say that, but to randomly say it, I'm like, well, how do you know that you grew in spirit when you say I, I had my journey? I'm like, how did you know you were traveling? What were the mm -hmm. signposts that indicated that you were? How did you assess that? How did you evaluate that? How did you know it was a positive experience versus a negative experience? Because what if a good experience felt negative in the moment? How did you know? that is good or bad in that moment or later. Like, that's what I mean is like, it's all of that's going on in those statements, but without any acknowledgement of, of any objectivity. It's always funny to think that, you know, you never meet anybody who says I'm religious, but not spiritual. <laughs> I just like the intellectual <laughs> exercise. of it. I don't actually believe anything. <laughs> it's just fun. <laughs> it's so true. But it's interesting because there probably are a lot of people like that. You know, we talked about the atheist gap year. Mm -hmm. You know, when you take the gap year from God, if you're still going to church, then maybe you are religious, but not spiritual. Right. I actually think, like, when you said it like that, I'm just like, very interesting. Because I actually think, at one point, I probably would have liked, and I actually think even theoretically, I like religious, not spiritual. Um, where I'm like, that's way easier. Like to me, where yeah. I'm like, if you can just give me a list of to-dos, <laughs> I would love it, right? Like I'm just like, yeah, no, 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 don't make me think about it. Don't make me feel anything. Like I did it, okay? Like I, I made the cut. All right, all those feely people go for it, but I'm like, just give me the rules. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in to the first part of our discussion with Father Anthony Paul, uh, Father AP. We hope to put out parts two and possibly three very soon, hopefully even by the end of the week. So stay tuned for more. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Spotify, Instagram, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, LinkedIn, Rumble, and other places probably very soon, all at The Forest Creek. Look us up. For inquiries or to connect with us about any of our content or our services, if you want to send us questions or topics that you'd like us to talk about on the podcast, feel free to email us at theforestcreek at gmail.com. You can find out more of Father AP's stuff on his website, truthandfreedom.co. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, and all that. It really helps our content, especially at this stage. And uh, remember to watch your plosives, because we're all on God's podcast. Goodbye.